if you would please, if you care to, turn to your Bibles. I thank you, Mark, for that exhortation of reverence for the Word of God. I think it dovetails quite nicely with what I hope to bring to you this morning, what I will bring to you this morning. We'll be in the fifth chapter of Ephesians, verses 15 to 17. The title of our sermon this morning, Yea, Hath God Said. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. May the Lord renew our hearts and minds this morning through our contemplation in his word. The text tells us that we need to pay attention to how we walk, or it's sort of a metaphor for how we live. Or if you prefer to think of how you walk along a particular path, hopefully occasionally you look down for rocks and stones and roots and things, so that you don't stumble. But to learn how to walk and to watch our step along the path of righteousness so as not to be unwise. We're called to be wise. We're called to not be foolish. And critically for our time together this morning, we are to understand what the will of the Lord is. And I think that we could certainly imply from the text that we can be acting foolishly with respect to knowing what God's will is. There is a process, a revealed process in God's word for knowing what God's will is and how we can implement that in our decision-making process. And so I think the question that is often on our minds when we contemplate is how do I know God's will? How do we come to know the will of God? It's no small thing. I'm going to discuss things that may rub some of us in an uncomfortable way. It's not my goal to make anyone uncomfortable. Um, my goal is to rightly handle the Word of God and to encourage you to the same end. It's a very important subject. Clearly, God's will is for all of us, I would hope, a high priority in our lives, in all respects, in all areas of our life. And how we discern that will, it follows, is therefore an equally weighty matter. How we go about discerning what the will of God is. So four topics that we'll tease out this, this afternoon. Number one, God's word is God's will. Number two, God's will is not revealed through private inter inner promptings of the spirit. Number three, knowing God's will is a gospel matter. And fourth, how then do we make decisions? God's word is God's will. Romans 12, 12th chapter in the second verse. Paul has just talked about presenting your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, as your reasonable act of, of worship. 
The second verse of that chapter says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Why? So that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. So we are to be able to detest, to, t- to test, so that we, sometimes we do detest the will of God, to test and to discern what the will of God is. That is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. And by the process of having our minds renewed through the word of God, we will truly find that out for ourselves. Lo and behold, God's will is good and perfect and acceptable. Jesus said when he was swarmed once again with people and they said, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are out here looking for you. Jesus said, who is my mother and my brothers and my sisters? Those who know the will of God and do it. Those who do the will of my Father in heaven. The same as my brother and my mother and my sister. So those two verses certainly invite us to the importance of the will of God, but also that it is knowable and it is find-outable. And, of course, we get some very specific instruction in Scripture, don't we? Most of us at this point are getting familiar and continue, will continue to be familiar with Paul's words to Timothy in his first letter, the third chapter, verses 16 to 17. Anyway, I think I have the wrong address there. Anyway, um, the scripture that we're talking about is all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for doctrine, correction, reproof, for training in righteousness, that the person of God, the man, the woman of God would be fully equipped for every good work. Okay, so there's a very key verse, isn't there, with respect to the will of God. If we're to know what God expects of us, if we're to know what God wants of us, we need proper doctrine, we need correction, we need reproof, we need exhortation, we need training in righteousness. But this is how we go about maturing and our discovering and our knowing the will of God. Peter, in his first letter, second chapter, verse 2, this is after he had just got done speaking about the word of God. He said, all flesh is like grass, back in the first chapter, and all its glory like the flower of the grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. In the second verse, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. I think I preached a sermon once here or somewhere called Rooting for God. And that rooting was R-O-O-T, like a little child roots and takes to its mother's breast and is just going after that milk. And that is to be our approach to the word of God. As our brother was speaking of this morning when he was up here. Then we have this excellent prayer, Paul writing to the Colossians. Paul's prayers are a great model for us to emulate 
when we think about how can I pray for my brothers and sisters in a way that will be heard for certain. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Why? Why is it necessary to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you can have a, a walk worthy, so that you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, to God, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's how important the will of God is. Here in Ephesians, in the first chapter, Paul mentions the will of God five or six times, I believe. So that will is discovered, among all places, of course, in the word of God. And in Ephesians, we have many examples of that. We have the very specific will of God revealed throughout this letter. I'll just share a few passages with you in this letter itself, just so that we remain where he was in this letter and follow his train of thought. Back in the fourth chapter, he says, put off your old self, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Remember, Ephesus, when Paul was dealing with the Ephesians, this is a people that came out of some really strange occult practices, ecstatic experiences, seeking their idea of God in all kinds of strange and bizarre ways. And you can read about that, and you can read just how crazy the people got with respect to Artemis, the fertility goddess, back in the book of Acts, when they just screamed on for hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. As if somehow just that chanting and that chanting and that chanting was going to bring something about. So Paul is, deal- Paul is dealing here with people that came out of a really um, bizarre religious milieu that he had to address and correct his <coughs> former manner of life and his corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirits of your minds. Speak the truth. Be angry and do not sin. Do honest work with your own hands. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. That's the will of God, not to let corrupting talk come out of our mouths. That's a tough one. There is a lot of corrupt talk going on today. It's very easy to get swept up in corrupt talk. It comes in the form of political speech quite often. And our response to that often comes out also as a corrupt response to corrupt talk that perpetuates corrupt talk. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's a whole lot of forgiving. There's a lot of unconditional love in that. The fifth chapter, therefore be imitators of God. You know, that's what we were created for. I'll allude to it a little bit further in the sermon, but we were created in the image of God. We were created to image Him. We were created to imitate Him. And we are equipped to imitate, to, we are equipped to imitate Him as new creation. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper for saints. No filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Let there be thanksgiving. Over in the fifth chapter again, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That sounds an awful like to, 
an awful lot to me like that is discoverable and find outable. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Hey, none of, none of us do any of this perfectly when you stretch the imagination. And it's interesting as well, over in the sixth chapter, this is very helpful, I find. In the sixth chapter, Paul says when he's speaking of the whole armor of God, he says to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit. So the sword of the Spirit is the Word of, the, is the word of God, and we're, we're to pray in the Spirit. So that tells me we need to pray with a mind fully informed and shaped by the Word of God. Effectual prayers, the effectual prayers of righteous people that avail much, are prayers that are the exhale of the inhaling Scripture. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you're going to bear a lot of fruit. That glorifies the Father to bear much fruit. David said, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God's word is God's will. And you know, it's such a short, brief little topic point. The first time I heard it put that succinctly was when Isaac Ratton, who pastors Faith Baptist Church, was being interviewed by the church I was then attending in Holland for the position of youth pastor. And so people were questioning him. And one of the questions that was asked is, you know, how do you know, what's, what's the will of God? Or something, something along. And he just looked out and just very calmly said, God's word is God's will. <laughs> As if, shouldn't you know that? Why are you asking me a youth pastor that? <laughs> God's word is God's will. Second point. God does not reveal his will through private inner promptings or spiritual nudges. This is not in any way to shame people or to mock people or to sound condescending in any way. It's because of the serious matter of the will of God and how, how well I know that we all want that and how well we receive that that it's necessary to address this particular point. Some examples of this, this sort of what, what amounts to claims of inner revelation or these spiritual nudges are found in some of the following phrases. The Lord laid it on my heart. The Lord spoke to my heart. The Spirit led me to thus and such. Again, through an inner sense of what he wants me to do. The Lord gave me a peace about it. The Lord called me to be a missionary or some such. These things are said by many sincere, devout Christians. And this is not at all to dismiss the role of emotions and what comes to us through the fellowship of God's people in prayer. When God sometimes just pours out an overwhelming sense of who he is, Brother Justin put it real well once. I was talking to him one day. I said, you know those times when it just seems so like ultra real? We know it's real, but when God's, the reality of God is just so deep, he said, yeah, it's almost like it's no longer by faith. (laughs) But the question is, and so yes, God can directly influence our thoughts, of course. But the question at hand is, what does the Bible reveal about the way we know God's will and make decisions? 
That's the question that we want to deal with. That's the purpose of the point. Is what does the scripture reveal about the way that we can know God's will and make decisions? And I think it's important to bear in mind when we say these things like the Lord laid it on my heart, the Lord spoke to my heart. And as we come to believe those things, we are assigning to those claims the same authority as the written word of God. For what you're saying is, I'm doing thus and such because God showed you in some inner way that this is his will for you. And so what you're doing and what people do unintentionally and may not realize is you are assigning to those inner promptings and nudges the same degree of infallible authority as the word of God itself. I prayed about it and came to this decision. Now, obviously, prayer is involved in all of our decision-making. But oftentimes, what's meant by that is I prayed about it, and then I got this sense of what I should do. At which point, how can anybody possibly question you? (laughs) Or ask you about your decision? Or perhaps they see something in that decision as a brother or sister, a mature brother and sister, that they're a little cautious about. How do they even go about bringing that up if this is something that you have received directly from God. God told you to do this is what that amounts to. And it's a very serious business to say God said thus and such. We see a lot of warnings about that back in the Old Testament, don't we? Deuteronomy 18 to 20, and I know this is not a, a, a total equivalent, which says the prophet that presumes to speak to me when I haven't spoke to them, you take that one out and stone him. And again, I know that's not what's in the heart of people saying this. I say that only to remind us of the weight of what it means to say that I speak from God. In Ezekiel, the 13th chapter, the third verse. You know, the subject came up, by the way, when we were planning the things that we would be preaching for some time. And Gary preached some weeks ago on some of the charismatic uh, movement and some of the claims of the charismatics. And at that time, him and I were having a discussion, and I expressed my concern at that time about this kind of thing. And we had a good, you know, robust discussion about that and decided that it was worthy of some study in, in uh, preaching. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. So, you know, God's leading us as it's so-called, to a decision or speaking to our hearts, giving direction. This is all equivalent to thus saith the Lord. So that gives us a a sense of the weight of it. When I was about a year out of the Roman church, and part of a a Bible-believing turned out to be a fundamental independent Baptist scourge of a church, but um, certainly the Lord, there was some good intentions there. (laughs) It's a bad Bible, but there were some good intentions. We had this uh, missionary to Cuba come to speak to us. He was a big, well-fed Baptist brother that was just, you know, full of the joy of the Lord. I mean, he walked into the place, and when he walked into the place, he brought light in with him, you know. Uh, my, my daughter, Sensei, her karate instructor, recently said to her, you, when you walk in here, you are a ray of sunshine. You just light up the place. That's what this guy was like. And his name was Ron, Brother Ron Maggard. And him and his wife, you know, they, he preached, they sang, they did this wonderful song, If That Isn't Love. If you've ever heard that song, If That Isn't Love, it talks about he left the glories of heaven. And, 
And then the, the refrain is, if that isn't love, there's no stars in the sky. And the ocean is dry, you know. If that isn't love, then heaven's a myth. You know what I mean? And I just, you know, he got my emotions. He got my, he just, I was so uh, blessed by this man. And so I got to thinking in the days to follow. Gee, I wonder if, I wonder if God would, how would I know if God wanted me to be a missionary to Cuba? You know, again, young Christian, impressionable, immature. How would I know that? You know, when I'm driving, I was working for Pepsi. I'm driving in my little Chevy S10 pickup, and it's got dust all over the dashboard. And I'm thinking, what would God do? Like, write it on the dashboard? I mean, how would I expect to hear from God? I no sooner had that thought than a car drove by, and the bumper sticker said, Free Cuba now. That was not a call for me to go to Cuba. I was still very immature in many ways as a Christian. I was just getting familiar with the Word of God for the first time. I don't know what that was. God providentially permitted that. It may very well be that Satan was involved in that as well, hoping to distract me and get me involved in something I had no business being in. But it was not a private revelation from God for Pat to go to Cuba. Certainly not. There's no way that I would know that. Because Scripture doesn't tell me anything that would indicate at some point, Pat, you're going to see a bumper sticker and that's what I want you to do. That's bumper sticker Christianity at its worst. I one time heard another brother say that he was called to the mission field and he did not disobey God by not going. And I thought, what a horrible burden to lay upon yourself and your family. You have no idea what you're saying when you say that. Did he have a strong desire? Clearly. But to call that a calling from God in the same way that we see the prophetic calls in Scripture, to say, thus saith the Lord, my response to that is, yea, hath God said? How could you possibly know that? <clears throat> a couple years back, for Aurora's something birthday, had her friends over, and what I had done in the meantime is, in the early in the morning as I had picked several locations around Spencer and East Brookfield. So the first location was on our swimming pool deck. I put the first little hint, that little rhyme, something that I made up, you know, something Dr. Susie. And that would lead them to the next place, which was at the waterfall over in Spencer, under the bridge, under a certain rock. You know, again, they would have to figure this out. And then from there, I had them go somewhere else, so four or five steps before they finally got to the treasure, we went to an escape room over yesterday in Surbridge. That, that's a lot of fun, by the way. And the whole time you're there, you're just getting... The, whole, the, the idea is to either find the answer to what's going on or to get out of the room. And you get all these clues, which leads you to other clues, which leads you... Some think that God reveals His will for their life in that way. Through circumstances, God led me to a clear knowledge of His will. Now, clearly, circumstances happen... But it is not through some inner prompting or some inner voice of the Spirit that says these circumstances is what I'm using to direct you to do thus and such. That is a dangerous game to play because, again, that carries the same weight and authority as Scripture. And it also assumes that you can fallibly have the gift of understanding and discerning God's will. And none of God's gifts are held infallibly by any of God's people. I am an infallible preacher... You are an infallible hearer. 
There are infallible, I mean, I mean, I'm sorry, you are fallible hearers. I am a fallible preacher. We have fallible musicians. We have every gift that we have in the body. Although you wouldn't know it from the last performance, by the way. That was fantastic, that nice little, right? Whether it's missionary work, whatever we do as Christians, this is not news that we do it fallibly, right? Restate my claim. It's not that God doesn't bring about conditions. He doesn't oversee things that are true and real. But, but does Scripture teach that Christians will be led and instructed through the means of so-called private prompting or, quote, being led by the Spirit to do such and such? And the answer from Scripture is an unequivocal no. In his very little helpful little work, the Ambassador's Guide to the Voice of God. This was probably written back when there was a gentleman named Henry Blackaby. He once wrote a book, I think, about And there's all kinds of books about, there, about hearing the voice of God. How to hear the voice of God. He went verse by verse to the book of Acts, which is a great place to go. Because the book of Acts is all about the early church and the formation of the church and how the church functions as a church. And all of Paul's pastoral epistles are the fruit of the missionary journeys he made that we read about in the book of Acts. So it's a very good place to go to try to find any evidence of this kind of God revealing himself, giving special directives that are pivotal in the role of decision making. And he found 70 such verses in the book of Acts, where people made decisions or were led to do something. Verse by verse. And this is what he concluded. He said, first, there is no indication in the entire record that God communicated through some inner sensing, completely absent from the text, are phrases like, I feel led, I think God is telling me, I feel God is calling me, I believe it's God's will that. I've received lots of confirmation that. I'm sensing the Lord's direction. I have a peace about it. There is no record of knowledge of God's direction based on internal promptings, not a single one. And he's right, of course. And neither were they seeking that kind of direction. They weren't seeking that kind of inner prompting. And that's one of the key takeaways of this, is to not seek that kind of revelation from God. A, you won't be able to trust it, because you are a fallible recipient of revelation. There are, in the book of Acts, a number of sort of exceptions to this. There are angelic appearances. There are things that are done as a result of visions. Paul is spoken directly to when the Spirit kept him from going to thus and such a place. There's a difference between describing something and prescribing something. There are offices, men in offices throughout the history of God's people that God has raised up for a particular purpose and who used extraordinary means of revealing things to. I think of Gideon with the silly lamb's wool. Lord, would you make this damp? Lord, would you not make this damp? Lord, would you do it right? That's a different thing than that becoming a prescription for how we are to know the will of God and how we are to go about making decisions consistent with the will of God. 
Other exceptions I anticipate or text or objections from the text, various texts that people may hold with respect to this inner working. And this one might be sort of the plainest one where somebody might be able to go, hey, Pat, I found the exception. This is found in Nehemiah, the second chapter, verses 11 to 12. Now, Nehemiah is going back to Jerusalem to build. He's the cupbearer. And by the way, the cupbearer wasn't just somebody that tasted the cup so the king didn't get poisoned. A cupbearer was held in very high esteem by the king. They were a counselor. And he says, So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. So here we have what looks like an an exception. But what we have again in Nehemiah is someone that God specifically used and gave him specific direction. And more than that, we have the scripture itself telling us that God literally put something into this man's heart. We don't have that scriptural attestation for anything that we can claim God laid upon our hearts. You understand the difference there? Do you see that? Notice also that he didn't go around telling people that the Lord put thus and such on my heart. In fact, he says just the opposite. I told no one. Why do we always need to qualify our decisions to others? Would the Lord laid it on my heart? Or the Spirit led me in the... Why do, we, why do we feel the need to do that? Why are we anxious about our decisions so that we, we sense we have to qualify it? In that way? Is there a fear that somehow we might get disagreement or pushback from somebody? Maybe it's just a sense of excitement that that people believe they've come to an understanding of God's will and they just want to share that. Rarely have I heard, and I don't know about you, but rarely do I hear somebody quote a specific text and how that turned them away from one thing to the next. I was going to join Fantasy Football League, which would be two or three nights a week with the guys. And I've got a couple young kids... But this is, I need this sort of man time. I think God would want this for me. But you know what? I was reading and I came across Husbands Love Your Wives as Christ Loved the Church, gave Himself up for. And, and I had my answer right there. I've ne- and rarely do I hear that kind of thing. I hear plenty of the Lord laid it on my heart or the Spirit. Now, obviously, the Spirit convicts that person through the text. That's the way it's supposed to work. Here's another one I think. This is from the 6th chapter of John where where Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Oh, there's one right there. Look, I hear the voice of the Lord. Well, you read the context of that. That's basically a metaphor for what we in Calvinistic thought or biblical thought call effectual calling. That's something that happened before salvation. It's a metaphor that Jesus uses to describe how people come to him to be his sheep. They get that born-again experience, as he talks about. And the metaphor for that is hearing the voice of God. That is not a directive in any way that tells us that you can expect to hear this quiet, unspoken voice of God leading you down this path or down that path. This is pre-salvation. It is not a guide for sort of salvation living in the same way. Another one I think that might come to mind, people bring up, is the prophet Elijah, who was tucked away in that little mountainside, and he wanted to hear from God, and there was a mighty wind, and it wasn't in the mighty wind, and it wasn't in an earthquake, and it wasn't in the earthquake, 
but it was in a still, as one of translations, some of the translations put it, gentle whisper of God. So, first thing I would note is that is not an inner anything. That is a literal, he heard an audible sound of the voice of God. He was a prophet. So he did actually hear something. It wasn't just an inner prompting of some kind. It wasn't some inner voice or something that he, that he suspects was God. It was a literal speaking to his prophet as he had continued. For whatever reason, I, I won't get into what, why the earthquake, why not the quiet voice, etc. In any case, it's a description of the way that God appeared to him at that point. It is not a prescription for how we are to go about discerning God's will in our lives by anticipating and waiting for some private message or revelation or some overwhelming sense of, without an objective standard by which we can apply that feeling, and again, it's just very easy for us in our fallible state to place God's notary stamp on our decisions and motives. Can we really trust ourselves to that? Do you really trust yourself to that? You have nothing to measure that against. There, there is no standard against which you can measure it. Now, you can look at the various things that led you to, to sense that or come about that, and through, through some conversation, I think we can probably get at that. Right? You, you've read Scripture, you've prayed, you've talked to people. Would God really leave us in a place to try to figure that out for ourselves? I'm going to give you little messages and hints and, and sort of little clues along the way. Knowing our frame and knowing that we are but dust, God cares way too much. I think this one's a big one, led by the Spirit, and I think Romans eight twelve to 14 has been used to sort of defend this. Now, so if we make decisions based on Scripture and the other ways that I'm going to talk about, then in that sense, yes, of course we're being led by the Spirit. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about decision by spiritual inner promptings alone. Where am I? Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 14. Because I can hear this objection potentially. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you buy, if you buy the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So take that verse by itself. Those that are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And it almost sounds like you have an argument until you study the text and you realize that there is an equivalency being drawn here between walking in the Spirit and putting to death the deeds of the flesh. That's what it means to walk in the Spirit is to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And we know what those are. We're discovering them more and more all the time in ourselves. Nothing about the Spirit leading us to certain decisions that carry the same weight as God's revealed will in Scripture. There's a danger in promoting a two-tiered Christianity with this particular mindset. Those that receive these spiritual nudges and these promptings and those that don't. And that is not what is promised to us in the gospel. You know, we're talking a little bit about the Mormons this morning in small group. Sister Pat was reading something about that. And I have my notes here. The way that the Mormons determine that the Book of Mormon, which is held in equal authority to the Scriptures, the way that they determine for themselves in their personal experience, the way that they can validate the truth of the Book of Mormon or the Scripture is through a burning in the bosom. 
so they're encouraged to pray for the burning in the bosom so that they can know that what they're reading is true. Somewhat loosely based on the two gentlemen walking on the road to Emmaus and they're talking to Jesus and after Jesus is gone, they say, man, did we not feel our hearts burn within us? Burning in the bosom. Could have been last night's pizza. Third point, this is a gospel matter. This is a gospel matter. We are created, as I said a few moments ago, to image God. We are his vice regents. We, are, we were put here initially to subdue the earth, to manage it, to be creative. So many wonderful things God had in mind for humanity when he, when he created them. And put him here between heaven and earth, on earth, to represent him. To, to, and he, he endued us with some of the very qualities and attributes that God himself has for reasoning and creativity and intention and purpose. Teleology is a big word. Just a fancy word for design. Of course, this was lost, right? This was lost immediately in the garden almost. But Jesus is, the scripture says, the exact image of God. So Jesus is the, is the human. He is the quintessential human. He filled the creation plan. He set about creating us new in the gospel. What Jesus is, he is creating a new in us as well. He is the first of the new creation being raised from the dead. New creation has already begun. It's not just something that's fully future. New creation has begun. It began when Jesus was raised from the dead, as we were talking about in group again this morning. The physical laws no longer have effect. Gravity could not keep him from ascending and the disciples seeing Jesus ascending into the clouds. Walls could not stop Jesus from appearing without going through the door. That's all the foretaste of the really cool things that are to come. Jesus is the ultimate human, but he restored us to something. He began something, and in that process, he united us to himself. We are all, we, we are all joined to him in such a way that we can respond to him in a way that we couldn't before. We can be transformed in a way that we could not possibly be transformed before. To get wisdom from this life, from Scripture, by the Spirit, and through a few other means, I'll mention in a few moments, like this quote by John Piper very much, it seems to me that the Bible describes the ordinary guidance of God as the development of spiritual sensitivity. In other words, the prerequisite of divine guidance is not the quest for messages, but the quest for holiness. Guidance is the product not of ecstatic heights, but of spiritual depth. I was reading an article in Psychology Today and came across this thing on things. I was, I was thinking through how is it that once we, what does it mean to be united to Christ, to have the mind of Christ? How is it that we can follow him, do the things that he did? and be the type of human that Jesus is. How can we possibly do that? And I got to thinking about some of the experiences I've heard about twins and the things that twins go through. And this is interesting. He said, so the Jim twins of Ohio were separated after birth. And by coincidence, both boys had been named James by their respective adoptive parents. James Lewis and James Springer found each other in 1979 at the age of 39. 
after Lewis went looking for his adoption records through the probate courts. This is the interesting part. The Jim twins had the same height and weight, which is common among twins, but they also had a number of similar quirks and life choices or decisions, as recorded by the Minnesota Center for Twin and Family Research. One named his first son James Allen. The other named his first son James Allen. But they haven't seen each other in 39 years. They don't even know. Both worked in law enforcement as deputy sheriffs. Their cars were the same make and model. Both married women named Linda, divorced, and later married women named Betty. <laughs> Both Jims have dogs named Toy. Jim and Jim also vacation along the same beach in Florida. They each develop tension headaches at age 18 and each gain 10 pounds at the same time. There's something about that union that happens. There's, something that, there's such a close DNA-type connection, and DNA affects our decisions. It affects our thoughts, and, and likewise our thoughts can affect our DNA. There's the volumes written on this stuff. This is not novel. But I wonder if, if being united to Christ is something like that. We begin to be able to read Scripture and be able to make good, sound, biblical Scripture, scriptural decisions, and, 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 uh, and develop sound, biblical wisdom because of our union with God in a way that we don't have before we're born again. So that His thoughts can now become our thoughts. So that we begin to do what has been imparted to us through Scripture, through Jesus, who is the Word of God, imparted into us, and we begin to live out the reality of that human that God intended, that always intended us to be. God just sort of joins us to himself that, and that through the Bible DNA, right? Something like that. I don't know. I can't pretend to describe it fully. It, you'll find weaknesses in that. That's okay. I, I don't intend it to be an infallible disputation on how it means to be related to God. And how that bears out in our decision making. But I wouldn't be surprised, entirely surprised when I stand on that glorious day before Jesus and he says, you weren't all off, you know. You weren't entirely wrong. Fourth point then, how do we make decisions consistent with God's will? Things not specifically revealed. What do I do for a wife? Or a husband? Or... Uh, um, how do I decide about a job or whether to move or what, what church I should go to? God's Word is filled with guiding principles to direct our steps and enable us to make sound decisions about these and other specific issues. For example, we're told in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Not just in marriage. Don't go into business with an unbeliever. The Lord's not going to put it on your heart to go into this business because, you know, you're thinking about, I know the way this works. You're thinking about your circumstances. You know you need money. There's an opportunity before you. Circumstances are unfolding. They're coming together nicely. You've got a good friend that's a lawyer that's going to do all the probate work for you. You're going to get this business set up and going. Everything's great. Your friend that you're going to go into business with, he's been doing this for years. He's an unbeliever. But we got all this, and I just really feel the Lord leading me in this direction. And you have violated the clearly revealed word of God for your heart for your peace of mind. I have peace of mind about this decision. I don't even know where that comes from. I've had a lot of decisions in my life and so have you that don't lead to peace of mind. They lead to tumult and difficulty and you know you've got to do it anyway. That again has wide application. Proverbs 19, 20, 24, 26, 27 all exhort us to seek wise counsel 
And we would do well to do that in all our decision-making, to see that godly counsel as we pursue a course of action, right? Of those other, of those other instances, uh, again, that the gentleman Greg Coco was referring to, he said, how did, you know, of all the decisions that were made in the book of Acts, how did they come to those decisions? And again, he, he found 70 such instances, right, and only 14 with this specialized direction. And in different instances, he says he does not counsel them to seek God's decision. This is when they were talking about Paul was saying, what are you doing suing one another in the courts? He said, isn't there not one wise man among you who should be able to decide between his brethren? He didn't tell them to go into prayer and wait and see what God does. He didn't tell them to see what sort of, you know, what the Lord, uh, what the Lord lays on their heart. And just saying, you know, final quote from him, they simply weighed their options in light of circumstances, then chose a judicious course of action consistent with prior general commands of the Lord. So they anticipated, they thought about, okay, what does Scripture say about marriage? What does Scripture say about thus and such? What does Scripture say about this? And then you begin to think about how does that, how does that work with, with my decision right now? How do I, does that have any bearing? You know, I, Martin Luther made an appearance here last week with that malicious pope, right? And what does Martin Luther say when they're pressing him to recant? And there's all kinds of pressure on him, and his wife could be in danger, and all these things could be in danger. He says, unless I'm convinced by Scripture and plain reason. Plain reason. We've got plain reason. We've got the ability to reason things through. We know that unbelievers from Romans 1 suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But there's plenty of things. You don't have to be a believer to make good decisions. You need to be a believer to make good, sound decisions that come from the wisdom that's from above. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, when Paul, Paul's talking about giving, he says, each one give as it is it's on your heart to give. Right? Moses had entered into his heart to go visit his people. doesn't say anything about God leading his, you know, putting a message on his heart. God put it upon his heart. Philippians 2.5, Paul says, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. That tells me I can think like Jesus. He says, I want you to think like Jesus. Right? Who, be, who, in very nature, who being God in very nature did not consider equality with God to be. In other words, he humbled himself and, and he was teaching them how do you, how do you, how do you interact with, with all these problems that you have, with all the, with all the tension. How do you, what do you, you have the mind of Christ. You have the mind of Christ and you've got the word of God. James says, seek wisdom. And that's not just like, okay, Lord, I need wisdom for this particular thing and then get it for that. That's developing a life of wisdom. Wisdom is, is skillful use of knowledge and information to do things that are best for you in life as a Christian and the other people around you. And yes, we might get it wrong. When all is said and done, we might just get it wrong. And again, we, we, no Christian holds any gift in perfection. Preaching, teaching, administration, music, all these things, good counsel, all these things are going to help us to have a biblically informed worldview. So if, for example, as is the case in the Cuba bumper sticker, uh, fortunately I had enough sense then to know, no, idiot, you don't hop on a train, plane and go to a communist nation right now because you've been a Christian for about a year and, and you saw something on the bumper sticker of a rusted old pinto. No, that's not how God does it. So we say, okay, I've got a real story. You know, even the, even the, I had a disagreement once with another pastor. He was telling me that the call to be an elder is different than the call to do anything else. I said, no, it's not. No, it's not. Scripture says if any man desires to be an elder, he desires a good thing. 
doesn't say if the Lord puts it into his heart. It doesn't say anything like that. And then there are scriptural qualifications if that man, okay, so he's got the desire. That's a good thing. What's his family look like? How does he act with other people? Is he always getting in fight? You know, all these different things. So, am I going to be a missionary? Do I want to move? Okay, I have to. Okay, what are the practical things I have to think about? Etc. Etc. Okay, I'm going to go to a different church. What? What do I? How, how do I come to that decision? Why am I coming to that decision? Who have I talked about this with? Other than sort of just yourself, and then again, you basically talk yourself into something. And again, this is unintentional, I know, but this is the way it works. You talk yourself into it, and all of a sudden, the Lord is good with it. In fact, He's the one that put it on your heart in the first place. And it's not to make light of the, the arduous process that we can go through in decision-making. But it is to remind us that God has given us a wealth of things in His Word so that even if we come to wrong decisions at certain times, or even if we decide not to do something, we're not bearing the weight of I'm going against God's authoritative implementation of spiritual motivation in me telling me to do this. And if someone tells me something that just doesn't make sense to me for that person, knowing them as I know them, and they say the Lord put it on your heart, I can say to them, you're going to have to explain to me what you mean when you say the Lord put it on your heart. Because the Lord's putting it in my heart right now that that ain't possible. <laughs> I wouldn't say that, right? So, yea, hath God said... Now you know how to rightly answer. Yes, he has said. It's in here. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we do thank you for the entire process you give us as uh, people that live in community and unity. And we can share our mutual gifts and insights to come to the kinds of decisions that are important. And Father, I pray that I know that there are some, I know there are, because they're peppered throughout the body that regularly sort of reference the decision-making in these ways, that there's no sense at all of some shame or wrong in that, other than to just hear instruction from your word and to not burden themselves with some assumed weight of authority in that sort of inner prompting. That is an unnecessary weight for them to bear, that you have not given that weight that you do use all kinds of things to help us come to decisions, that we would use all those things collectively to come up with the best decision we can <clears throat> and then just leave it in your hands, knowing that you are the sovereign Lord of all and that even if it goes, something goes wrong, we're going to learn from it and something wonderful is going to happen. So we, we bless your holy name for your word. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we commit ourselves again to you this morning anew and that as we go out there into the world and into our jobs, we go ready and prepared to get into your word quick and ready, to think carefully about it, to apply it to our lives, to feed one another your word, to just be there for one another.